This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Deputy EPA Administrator Janet McKay was in Honolulu this week. On Monday, she toured the Red Hill Underground Fuel Storage Facility and toured the area where efforts are being made to flush the water into Halava Stream. She was also on hand yesterday at a Superfund site out at Camp Kunia on Oahu. The community living at the Plantation Village now has a new drinking water system thanks to a $1.6 million revolving fund. The Kunia site was contaminated with pesticides used on pineapples decades ago when Delmani operated in the area. The chemicals began turning up in the Cunea wells in the 80s. Back then, the Board of Water Supply installed the first granulated carbon filters in the pump stations to try and help clear the water of the contaminants. Fast forward almost four decades later, and industrial granulated activated carbon filters are in place to help flush the Red Hill shaft of petroleum products in the military's tap water. Here's Janet McCabe following her tour yesterday of the plantation village at Cunea. The focus there is clean water, which is about the most important thing for people. And to be able to provide clean water and reliable water to this community, along with these lovely little rebuilt houses, it's just such a lovely little little community, but but it, it can't be one without clean water. And so this is the kind of thing that people have to come together on because they're expensive and they're involved. And so EPA was thrilled to be able to play a part through the state revolving fund. And I recall being out there in the Cunea fields, uh, you know, when the Board of Water Supply was trying to figure out what to do to, you know, clean the water of the contaminants when they when they started to find all these chemicals uh, in the water there due to the pesticide use. Yeah, there's a long history long history here and now there's clean water and the pipes are replaced and you should see the water tanks they just gleam they're so shiny and new and this is what people deserve is to 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 know that their water supply is safe and sound it was on the superfund cleanup list and and it took a while yeah well these things do these things do but it's uh, it's off now which is what we want to see and, you know, you're here uh, at, at a time when clean water is in the news just about every day. Uh, you know, tainted water, I guess, is, is the problem that we're dealing with now over at Red Hill. And you had that opportunity to visit the facility this week. Red Hill facility, yes, yes, I did. I got to go down into the tunnels and peek into one of the tanks that's um, uh, being checked. And um, it's a, a remarkable facility. What what a feat of of human accomplishment. What were you struck by? Well, you know, I've been, I'm based in Washington, D.C., but I've been involved with this project for the last couple of months um, with virtually daily calls and very connected with our EPA folks in our Region 9 office, with folks on the ground here. Um, So I learned a lot about it um, through through those calls. But to be there and and to see it actually to appreciate the the size of it, to appreciate the uh, the proximity of uh, of all the parts of it, the fuel handling equipment, the the water supply, and the mechanisms that have been have been put in place to address the the spill that happened are are really remarkable to see in person. Now you know, just coming off of the Cunia event, I mean, that was what 1.6 million dollars to clean up the contamination there. And, you know, this thing at Red Hill, I mean, it's an ongoing event. A lot of those families are still in hotels in Waikiki. And, and uh, you know, a lot of minds are trying to figure out what's the best way to, you know, clear the system of the contaminants. But mm-hmm. it's not easy. Well, I think the, the flushing program that has been put in place and been implemented over the last month or so is the right approach um, in a situation like this with very rigorous sampling to make sure that the water supply is actually clear and um, EPA is working with all the parties, the Department of Health, the Navy and, and other stakeholders to make sure that that's done properly and that people can feel confident uh, in the data that are being produced and feel confident um, at whatever point the Department of Health can say that it's safe for people to, to start drinking the water again. But I agree with you, it's been very disruptive to thousands of people. 
And, you know, the costs just keep climbing. And I know that there, the legal issues, you know, uh, that are playing out, you know, with the governor's emergency order to defuel, you know, the military is, you know, asking for some more time, you know, but the concern people have is that, you know, this was kind of a wake-up call for, you know, the worst possible scenario um, for greater, you know, Oahu, not just for for those families that are on the military system. So I guess a, a lot can be said for prevention, so we don't have to spend, you know, on the back end to clean up the water. Well, that's right. A safe and healthy water supply is is absolutely essential for any community and for the island of Oahu, for sure. Um, and that's why EPA and others are, are paying close attention to this and really focusing on how to get this particular situation cleaned up and how to make sure that the water supply is protected into the future. The laboratory testing has, you know, has been an issue because initially it just has taken so long, you know, to get those results back, you know, because they've got to be sent to the mainland, I don't know what other efforts are being made to boost our our lab capabilities here. One of the issues is that that a lot of samples are being taken, which is a good thing uh, because we want to make sure that it's a robust sampling protocol. And this is a, a number of neighborhoods that are affected. So you have a lot of samples that are being collected. Uh, EPA was able to bring one of its mobile labs to the West Coast to help with the sample analysis and I understand from our emergency response personnel that we're following the protocols and that um, if you want to make sure that the data are of the highest quality and that people can rely on them, you, you don't rush it. And so we're, we're doing the steps that need to be done in order to make sure that everybody can feel confident in the data. And talk about the team that you've got here, uh, you know, because you've flown in, you know, your experts and, and they're at the table to figure out the best way forward. Yeah, we well, we sure have. Um, we have people here on the island permanently, but we've brought in our, um, they're known as on-scene coordinators. So these are personnel who are experienced in emergency response of various types, including water contamination situations. We've brought in people who can interpret and, and uh, quality assure the uh, water sampling data. So we have water quality experts, all of them. We bring people in for a period of time and then we cycle them out so that we uh, are always bringing in fresh talent and the expertise that we need. And then thanks to the internet and the ways we're all now used to communicating with each other, we have experts from other parts of EPA, from our San Francisco office and other places who are consulting on an ongoing basis with uh, the folks on the ground here to make sure that, uh, that questions get answered. Um, and that uh, people are participating. And that's a that's an amazing thing, you know, that we can have that expertise wherever it is throughout the agency uh, participating in the response effort, even if they aren't here on the ground in Hawaii. And uh, as far as, gosh, as we, as we kind of make our way through these phases, you know, of recovery, the flushing and then getting the families back in, and then, you know, really finding a way to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And, of course, our, our immediate concern has been to deal with the immediate spill and the, and the recovery and the flushing of the system and making sure that folks can get back in, into their homes and, and use the water there. Um, but we're, we're all in and, and committed to the, the long term here and making sure that that water supply is protected into the future. So we, we, will, we will be an integral part of, of all of those efforts going forward. I really felt like I needed to come to Hawaii because of my involvement in the Red Hill incident, and it was just important for EPA to have that level of a visit here and to, to make sure that I got to meet some of the people at the state and local level and, and on the military side in person to see these things for myself, and the uh, Kania event was a, a very nice thing that happened to be happening at, at the same time. It illustrates how, how these issues are so community-based. And whether it's a little community of less than 100 homes, that's home to, to the families who, who, who live there. Or it's the city of Honolulu, quite a bit bigger than 82 homes. The thing that, that uh, ties them together is clean water and the public being able to have access to clean water and uh, government being there to, to help make sure that that's the case. That was Janet McCabe, Deputy Administrator of the Environmental Environmental Protection Agency. The mission of the EPA is to protect human health and the environment. 
While in town, McKay visited the Red Hill site and the Superfund cleanup site at Camp Kunia. She departed Honolulu last night, headed back to Washington, D.C. We continue to talk about the developments around Red Hill, and that's the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, so you have a story today about the early warning system that maybe didn't work. Right. So for years, the state health department has required the Navy to do quarterly water testing around the Red Hill fuel facility. And the point of that was really to provide an adequate warning of any potential unacceptable risk to human health. So hopefully that it would let you know before uh, fuel hits people's taps. Um, but as we all know, late last year, a crisis was emerging and that early warning system did not give anyone advance notice and the only way that the military says they found out about this was people complaining about the smell of fuel coming from their water and that they were feeling ill. You talked to a, uh, a spouse of a, um, a military uh, service person, and, and uh, I was struck uh, by the statement that she said about what the doctor was saying that he was seeing with his patients that were coming in with these problems. Right. Meredith Wilson, she's an Air Force wife. Um, she told me that she went to the doctor in early November, and this was weeks before um, things really went public around Thanksgiving weekend. It was around November 2nd, and she um, tells the doctor she's feeling dizziness, vertigo, disorientation, like an out-of-body type experience. And the doctor tells her, well, gosh, you're the fifth female I've seen in the past two weeks with vertigo symptoms. It could be something environmental. And Meredith told me that was just burned into her memory forever uh, because, lo and behold, a few weeks later, she would find out that she had been drinking fuel for God knows how long. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty shocking because to to know then that the doctors are, are are seeing something that's not right. It's not quite right. Mm -hmm. Right. And it really, the, the test results from the months before everything got public attention are um, pretty concerning. Um, there were levels of total petroleum hydrocarbons, or TPH, um, basically uh, contaminants connected to like heavy oils in Greece. That was in the Red Hill well um, as early as July of last year. Um, and it's present in August as well. In September, there's two points in August where it goes above the state health uh, standards for drinking water. But even the presence of it below that standard um, should be concerning, according to experts I spoke to. And, um, you know, two of those experts told me if they saw readings like that, they would have ordered the well shut down. But neither the Navy nor the Department of Health did that in this case. Yeah, because if you're talking four months here of something in the water and your family's drinking it, uh, you know, or bathing in it, uh, that doesn't leave you with a real good feeling. No. And I did ask the Department of Health, you know, how did you interpret these results and why is it that you didn't issue a, a warning before people started to complain? And they said, well, the Navy is responsible for sharing their test results and they were giving them months late to the health department and it like incomplete. So some of the results were, you know, blank or marked preliminary. Um, and some of the levels, as I mentioned, were indicating contamination, but then, you know, days later they would indicate a non-detect, that nothing was there. And so the health department said they were basically trying to assess what was going on. It was hard to get a clear picture. And before they could determine whether to issue an advisory, people started to complain um, around November 28th. Um, the Navy hasn't provided as clear an explanation of their thought process. They just said that they believed that there was not a threat based on those results. They claim that the results were within EPA standards, although they didn't specify which standards they're talking about. And when I looked at the water contaminants that are regulated by the EPA or that they have standards for, total petroleum hydrocarbons are not on that list. TPH is like an umbrella term for a class of chemicals. It's not a, a specific um, contaminant like benzene would be. So um, I'm hoping to learn more about their rationale going forward. 
Um, so I'll keep asking questions. Yeah, and as we just heard from the EPA uh, deputy administrator, right, this whole issue of testing and being able to, to get the results locally, uh, that's going to be a real need going forward for sure. Right. Uh, you know, people are reacting to this story and saying it really underscores the need for a local testing facility to get results fast. But also, it may just be a sign to shut the facility down, they say. Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Thanks so much, though. A uh, good story. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedder with today's Reality Check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're wading through ocean break in search of a creature who lives along the coastlines throughout the Hawaiian chain and up through Midway Atoll. It's easily identified by its distinctive coloration. When seen from above, it's black with a kind of white polka dot pattern across its six-foot-wide back. From below, it's brilliant white. These fish are able to launch themselves into the air, breaking the ocean surface and twisting in mid-flight. They're often spotted by divers who are cautioned not to touch the long whip-like tail, which has barbed spines at its tip. They feed by digging in the sand for clams and oysters, locating their chosen meals by sensing electrical fields beneath the surface. We're looking today for their Hawaiian name, which is translated as magnificent or elegant bird. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. downward trend of COVID cases is positive news for our healthcare workers. You know, we got to wondering about the 911 calls for our ambulance service here on Oahu. They were having a tough time recently. We caught up with Emergency Medical Services Director Dr. Jim Ireland on a break yesterday afternoon. He was feeling encouraged that things were improving. Things are super busy. Good news is COVID seems to be going in a direction that is good. Um, cases are down, hospitalizations are down. The city now has two quarantine facilities open up, so we're helping people out that aren't able to go to shelters or the dorm or, or other places. We've got 25 new lifeguards hired. That's good. Core is off and running, really focusing on the homeless in Chinatown. And the 25 people who are out with COVID and EMS are mostly back to work. We just graduated an 18-person recruit class, and I think eight or nine paramedics just graduated from KCC. So 22 looks to be starting a lot different and a lot better than we've seen in the last two years. I think as long as things are trending in a good direction for us, meaning lower case counts, lower positivity rate, less hospitalizations, I think people are feeling much, much better about COVID than they've had in a long time. And at the same time, people continue to get um, boosted, you know, fully vaccinated. And, and so I think, I think finally everything's lining up to where we can maybe put this, we'll never totally put it behind us, but we can put it behind us in the sense that 
I've always said that I, I look forward to the day that we can treat this like the flu. What I mean by that is if you get the flu, you stay home. You don't come to work sick, but you get your vaccine every year. Um, but we don't quarantine people. We don't do close contact surveillance, these heightened measures that were required with COVID. Um, and we will treat this like the flu someday. I just don't know when that day is. I don't know if it's going to be next month or later in the year or, or when. But um, at some point, we will have tamed this for the most part, although I doubt it will be totally eliminated. Now, last month, you put out an appeal because you were getting just inundated with unnecessary non-emergency calls, and some of them were from people who just wanted to get tested for COVID. First of all, we have a um, communications group at, at, the, at the JTMC, our, our 911 EMS dispatchers. They're awesome. Um, they take these calls. Um, they use a nationally recognized system to triage them into critical, serious, and, and minor. And they, obviously, the critical calls get EMS right away. The fire department often will go on those calls. Um, the serious get EMS, but the minor calls are the ones where uh, a lot of people would say, do these people even need an ambulance? And we're still obligated to go. We still send an ambulance. Um, if the, the homeless are calling now for these minor calls, a lot of times we're sending the core team, so we're not sending a 911 ambulance. Generally, for those really mild calls, we don't use the lights and sirens. But when it's already busy, having half a dozen of those types of calls come in that are super minor, really is tough, and it's tough for everybody else who's trying to, to, to go to all the emergencies. And when I talk about minor calls, what I mean is things like, I want a sandwich, can I get a COVID test, I've got some gout in my foot, I fell a week ago and I'm a little sore, um, stuff like this that, you know, I have a cold, can you come swab me for COVID? So these are things that I, I would say the majority of the population would either go to their private doctor for or go to an urgent care for. But there's just a segment of the population who uses 911 for everything. And, and, and a part of it is because maybe they don't have resources or they don't have a ride to the doctor, or maybe some of them don't even have a doctor. So again, we will always go to those calls, but they are triage kind of lower on the list. And when it gets super, super busy, they're gonna have to wait for an ambulance, sometimes up to an hour if the call is super, super minor. The, the thing is, you know, we want you folks to be available for the serious emergencies, you know, where it's life and death and you do need somebody there right away. Exactly. And we do have a policy where we, once we established care with someone, we're not going to abandon them. So if someone goes on a call for something super minor like pain in the, in the foot for gout and the person wants to go to the hospital, we're going to stay with that patient and take them to the hospital. Even if there's a car crash three blocks away, we have to send another ambulance to that car crash. And there are only 21 ambulances on Oahu. So, you know, when an ambulance goes out, and for instance, like in Hawaii Kai, they transport all the way to the town hospitals. You know, in Waianae, they transport all the way to, to, to Queens West and Polymomi. So they're out of their districts for a period of time, even with regular calls. So when they start getting inundated with a kind of above and beyond, it gets, it's a stretch and we have to move people around. Fortunately, we do have a backup contract with the private ambulance provider, American Medical Response. And they're able to assist the city when the city is overwhelmed with calls or busy with calls. And then the core ambulance as well, um, crisis outreach, response, and engagement, designated for the homeless. But if the city is getting busy with regular 911 calls, we will divert them at, at times away from kind of the homeless mission to help just with the regular 911 calls. Um, so it's a team effort. I, I should add, too, we also get help from the military. Federal Fire Department has ambulances throughout the island of Oahu, and, and they will help us with mutual aid if the ambulance call is, uh, EMS call is near their base, as we help them. You know, if there's a couple calls on Hickam and they only have one ambulance there, uh, you know, we'll go help them and vice versa. So it's a, it's a team effort, but we all, all look out to help each other as well. And if I recall, you folks just got a couple of new ambulances. Well, we did get, I think, maybe around a half a dozen ambulances with the CARES Act funding. And that was uh, specially designed ambulances with UV lighting for extra disinfection and uh, partitions between the front and the back and really to help with the um, pandemic and COVID type EMS calls. In our regular EMS budget last year, we ordered 10 new ambulances and those hopefully will arrive sometime you know, between now and the end of the year. And that was with just our regular regular funding. So equipment-wise, we're moving forward in a, in a, in a place I'm, I'm getting to a place I'm pretty comfortable with, with equipment. The other thing, though, that we're doing differently is, historically, we've always hired from the KCC EMS training program. You know, I went to that program, you know, probably 95% of our department went through that program, but we're just not getting enough recruits or um, people we can hire 
out of those classes from KCC. So what the city did last year is we did our own academy where we hired people through the competitive process, and then we contracted KCC to do these, teach these academies for us, and we're now on our second one right now. So we've just graduated our first one, and our second one is, is just started this uh, past month with, with uh, 25 slots in each academy. So doing now, we're going to do those at two a year until we get to our full staffing. So adding the people we can hire from KCC plus up to 50 people a year in our own academies, I think will really buffer our workforce more we can fill PUCAs. The other thing that's great about the academies is you start the academy as a city employee, uh, full benefits and pay. Whereas if you go through the KCC program, you're a student, you know, having to work another job while you're in school or student loans or whatever, and then we hire you at the city when you're all done. Uh, or, you know, other people compete for those, those students as well, the private ambulances and the fire department. But the city academy, what's so great about it is they're a city employee from day one with those benefits and pay. So we think it's a good model, similar to, very similar to what police and the fire department use in ocean safety. But going forward, I think that'll, that'll um, help fill our ranks. And for the additional uh, ambulances that, that are on order, are those replacement an- ambulances or are, there, are they additional ones that'll help fill the gaps in some of the coverage here on Oahu? Those are all replacement ambulances that just take ambulances out of service that have, you know, 200 or more thousand miles on them. But we are looking at adding service as well. Some of the places kind of on my mind are, well, there's two things I look at. One is geography and one is call volume. From the standpoint of geography, we probably need an ambulance in the Waikane area or Kualoa Ranch area because the nearest two ambulances to there is Kahuku and Kaneohe. Sunset Beach, which is between the Wailua Ambulance and the Kahuku Ambulance, again, geographically, I think makes sense for us. We probably need a second ambulance in Waianae. But for as far as volume and the number of calls, the downtown metropolitan area is very, very busy. So at some point, probably an ambulance in Kakako, an ambulance in probably the Kalihi area to augment. uh, You know, we already have five ambulances downtown, but to augment those services as well. So there's a few needs, and we'll probably obviously start out one at a time, but we're looking for how we can do that within our own city budget, as well as potentially with you know, federal money that's coming in, and like the ARPA and the different federal programs that are new since COVID. So kind of everything's on the table, but definitely looking at expanding services. Really do, trying to do what makes sense and what's going to really benefit the community, not just today and tomorrow, but for many years to come. There's some strategies that mm-hmm. some mainland cities are using, and we're looking at those. One is to use a partnership with ride-sharing companies in response to 911 calls. So if somebody does call for something that's so, so, so minor that they could go to an urgent care in a vehicle other than an ambulance, some mainland cities are actually sending Uber or a Lyft in partnership with the city or that jurisdiction to go get that person and they don't even send an ambulance. So we're looking at stuff like that. We definitely want to give patients the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes we get there and they are more serious than, we, than it sounded like on the phone call. Um, but our triage program is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're looking at that. That was Dr. Jim Ireland, Director of the City's Department of Emergency Services, getting a call as we were talking with him. Uh, the EMS covers ambulance staff, the paramedics and um, emergency medical uh, technicians, as well as lifeguards for ocean safety. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we catch up with a local tech company that has pivoted and innovated through this pandemic. We'll find out about the trials and tribulations scaling into an international company and still maintaining its roots in Hawaii. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, providing full-service wealth management on Oahu, Maui, and throughout California. 
Learn more at thericepartnership.com. Today on The Long View, we have our eyes on the elections, the insiders and the outsiders. Today, we are joined by our contributing editor, Neil Milner. Good morning. Good morning. I'm a real insider. Yes. So, yeah, let's talk about the elections and, and who's running or who's not. Well, I got interested in the question of how much people always talk about the fact that they like to throw the politicians out and bring in some outsiders, some fresh faces, even some people who are not politicians at all. And you hear it about term limits, get them out, get the rascals out. The problem is that it seldom happens. It happens when we're going to talk about a situation where it's actually gotten better, where that happens a little bit more. But just overall, incumbents win the overwhelming majority of the time. It's a little easier for non-incumbents to win now. But people tend to back away from their anger about keeping the politicians when they vote. So I'm going to look at an interesting study of a certain kind of election for Congress overall in which there is an open seat. That means there's no incumbent. This is national, no incumbent. And the candidates who are running in the primary, one will have more political experience, will have had some elected office experience, but will not be an incumbent running against somebody who's really a true amateur, no political experience at all. Something like what Dr. Oz is doing in Pennsylvania, running for the Senate, only that's the Senate. So in other words, there's no incumbent. So the incumbency advantage is not there. You got one candidate that has a lot of political experience elective, and you got another candidate that we can call a true amateur. It used to be that a true amateur would win only about 30-some percent of the time. And that was up until about very recently. And then all of a sudden, back in 2016, the congressional elections that year, it jumped to the fact that uh, amateur running against a professional non-incumbent has a better chance of winning than the professional does. So that in a sense, you know, if you're a real outsider and you were running for Congress in this kind of election, your odds got a lot better in 2016. So then they look at what seems to be the reason, you know, what has changed? They don't find that it's ideology. Lots of people would think that it's ideology. It's not that so much. Certainly part of it is that the increase of distrust of politicians and distrust of political institutions have increased. But the main thing seems to be that it's now easier, considerably easier for an amateur to raise money for this kind of thing than it used to be, because now you have PACs. You have single-issue things. You have a way to tap into money that you didn't have before. Someone with political experience who's run for another office but is now running for a new office has got a lot of advantages, we always assume. He's got a network. He's got already fundraising contacts. The PACs have even the playing field a little bit. Now, there's a lot of problems with how these PACs work. A lot of people don't like them. But that seems to have change the calculus so that now in those kinds of races where you got an amateur versus let's call them uh, an experienced pal, the amateurs got a pretty good, better than even chance of winning that congressional thing. So let me stop there and see if you got any questions. Well, you know, how are they faring with raising money? They're faring pretty well. I mean, that's the thing. Money's not everything, but it's a big thing. And amateurs, because it's now easier to raise money, easier in the sense that you don't need as many pre-existing connections that you did before. You don't need as much of an already established network, at least partially because all political campaigns have become much more nationalized. That means you raise money from places that are far away from where you are. If you look today, Josh Green, for example, for a different kind of race, has been very successful in raising money from people in California and in New York. That's part of it. Secondly, it's social media now. So that's a big advantage. Part of it seems to be throwing your rascals out. But as we've seen in the past, 
just saying that is a long way from actually being able to get rid of politicians. So that's how that sort of thing works. If you then look at elections where if you compare the general election, where let's say art amateur is running against the person on the other party who would not be an incumbent, they do just about as well as someone who had the political experience before. It's just about even. Republicans are a little more willing to choose real novices than Democrats, but it's not a huge difference. So things have changed. It's a little easier in an open seat to win the primary and then to have a good chance in the general election than it used to be. But you got to keep in mind that when there's an incumbent in a race, the incumbent still has a big advantage. And that most years in Congress, the incumbents are running again. And so you're, you know, you always face that obstacle. But in these situations where the seats are open, the calculus has changed a little. You know, I'm just thinking here, like locally, you know, the, the thought is, yeah. oh, you get your feet wet on the neighborhood board here on Oahu, you know, and then you, you kind of move your way up. But, you know, folks don't always follow that tact. And, you know, sometimes they start in a higher office and then go to, uh, you know, we've had people uh, in Congress come back down to work on the council. Yeah, sure. But the fundamental fact of what we're talking about now is that how many of them, when they run for higher office, have already had experience winning lower offices? If you look at the lieutenant governor candidates, for example, almost every one of them has held office before. Amamiya makes the case that he hasn't, which is right, although he's certainly had a lot of experience in the kind of political context. If you look at who runs for Congress here, you find the same thing. You find that the people who run for Congress on the Democratic side tend to be, or almost always tend to be, people who've held the office before. Here's an interesting kind of situation where you could have something different in this state. Most of the time in this state, Democrats win, incumbents win, end of story. If Kai Kahele would actually run for governor, which is, and I don't even know if it's a rumor, it's a, it's a talk, you would have an open seat, and then maybe you would have a test of that kind of stuff. But the fundamental thing here still is that people who run for office, run for, let's say, a higher office, Congress and so on, and the Senate, already have elective political experience, particularly on the Democratic side. The Republican side here is a little different because they don't win any seats. So generally, though, the thought is that we grumble a lot, but at the end of the day, we may not really want a fresh face. Well, I mean, that's one takeaway. But the other takeaway is that there does seem to be an opening that what this shows about running for Congress is that this increase in amateurs winning in primaries against someone who has more political experience shows that maybe we're a little bit more in between the kind of idea of throwing your rascals out and not mm. doing it. And it used to be until about 2014, the assumption was, and it was approved by the data, the assumption was that if it was in a primary, like we're talking about that kind of primary, if someone with political experience ran against an amateur, the one with political experience would win so often it was kind of conventional wisdom. So what happened in recent years, it's not conventional wisdom anymore, but it's not like a huge change. Yeah. Well, Chansom. Chansom. <laughs> not me, but yeah, well, sure, Chansom. Well, you know, people who run for office tend to be optimists. They mm -hmm. tend to think for all kinds of reasons that they can break the pattern, they can break the challenge. So more power to them. I'm just reporting on statistics. I'm not going to give anybody any kind of strategy on how they run their political or their non-political life. All right. Well, that's the long view, and we'll see what uh, washes out <laughs> right in the election. Yeah, okay. Thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. We have been talking to retired political science professor Neil Milner on the long view. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We've got an all-too-familiar bird song for you today, courtesy of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the spotted dove. 
Spotted doves were an early arrival to Hawaii for an introduced bird. Originally from India and Southeast Asia, they were first brought here by immigrants from China in the 1850s who kept them in cages and used them for food. Escaped spotted doves established a breeding population on Oahu by the 1870s and on most of the other main Hawaiian islands soon after that. Spotted doves are about 12 inches long from bill to tail, brownish gray, with really distinct black and white spotted feathers on the back of their necks. They're similar in color, but about twice the size of zebra doves, which are those common little doves that spend a lot of time on the ground and are often seen in parks begging for food from people. If you live in any urban or rural area across Hawaii, you likely have spotted doves living nearby and can hear their various types of coos throughout the day. Male spotted doves can often be seen on the ground giving elaborate courtship displays that include lots of bowing and tail flaring in an attempt to impress nearby females. Like other types of doves, they're unusual in the bird world in that they produce a type of milk in their crop, which is a pouch in their throat, that they can feed to their hungry babies by letting them stick their bills into their mouths to drink in the nutritious food. No other birds that aren't doves do this. Spotted doves are also among the few birds that use their bills as a sort of straw to suck up water when they drink. Unlike all other birds that drink by dipping their bill into the water, then tipping their heads backwards to let the water run down their throat, spotted doves eat a variety of seeds and fruits, including those from a number of invasive plants such as Clydemia and Myconia. While they can be found from sea level up to 8,000 feet in elevation, they generally don't enter into our native forests, but when they do, they're likely spreading invasive plant seeds into these sensitive habitats. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. Earlier in the show, we asked you about a coastline creature native to Hawaiian waters, known by a variety of names in English, such as the Hawaiian spotted eagle ray, bonnet ray, duckbill ray, and spotted duckbill ray. The animal shape suggests that of a bird, and its angular dorsal fins are often described as wings. The comparison goes even further if you're lucky enough to see them reach the ocean surface and spin in midair. Female rays have been known to birth their pups in midair each of them 10 to 20 inches wide. Newborns must adapt to ocean life quickly. They're a favorite prey of tiger sharks. Many Hawaiians believe this creature to be sacred, and for some, it's a family guardian. Today, we asked you for its Hawaiian name, which means magnificent or elegant bird, perhaps inspired by their aerial exploits. The name we were looking for and the answer to today's backyard quiz is Hihi Manu. We got lots of calls on this one, and their winner <laughs> with the fastest fingers was Kimo Lyman out in Mokulei'a. Congrats, you got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz for us, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from Evergreen by Deborah, featuring hydroflow permeable pavers. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about how hydroflow pavers are designed to allow rainwater to find its way back to the island's aquifers and reduce runoff. This week on Reveal, we wrap our three-part series into the disappearance of 43 Mexican students, and we track down a man in witness protection who says the government tortured him into giving a false confession. I can't describe what it feels like to have a bag over your head and to be deprived of air. The final chapter of After Ayotzinapa on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, launching its Hapa Symphony Series, joining with the Makaha Sons, featuring Kala'e Camarillo this Friday at Hawaii Theater. Tickets at myhso.org. Lawmakers are considering setting aside $600 million to go to long-term affordable housing for Native Hawaiians. It's thanks to an unanticipated budget surplus. House Bill 2511 would help the Department of Hawaiian Homelands move thousands of Hawaiian beneficiaries off the wait list and onto homestead land. HPR's Ku'ubehi Reishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Anyone uh, sort of tuning in for opening day of the Hawaii State Legislature may have heard State House Speaker Scott Psyche pledge a one-time $600 million appropriation at DHHL. Uh, the Hawaiian Homelands Program, for folks who might not be familiar, was established more than uh, 100 years ago. It set aside uh, more than 200,000 acres for Native Hawaiians with 50% or more Native Hawaiian blood. So beneficiaries get 99-year leases uh, for a dollar a year and uh, making it a long-term uh, affordable housing solution for many Hawaiian families. Now, right now, there are nearly 10,000 uh, Native Hawaiian beneficiaries currently on Hawaiian homelands. Some families have been on that land for four or even five generations, but another 28,000 are waiting, and that uh, prompted... Uh, the House to propose this legislation at the last minute, which uh, surprised many, including the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Psyche called the issue an economic justice issue. House Bill 2511 would create this special fund to be administered by DHHL with the sole purpose of providing these long-term affordable housing opportunities. Uh, DHHL Deputy Director Tyler Eokepa-Gomes uh, says they, the department is grateful uh, for this uh, huge infusion. You know, sufficient funding has long been a struggle for the department. On average, DHHL receives about $50 million a year. Uh, so $600 million would go a long ways. And Gomes says this infusion would allow DHHL some, some flexibility in serving its beneficiaries. I think what's clear is there is a real commitment here to address the wait list. So knowing that this 600 million could be used for anything from development of single family homes, which is the traditional idea of what DHHL does. It could be used for infrastructure for uh, undeveloped properties that maybe are would be great for development, but for the fact that they don't yet have access to water or sewer. Uh, it could be used uh, perhaps to supplement our our growing interest in doing rentals. We have that rental project coming up in downtown Honolulu and Mo'ili'ili. Uh, the former Bolodrome site. And if that, if there turns out to be high demand there, uh, maybe there's interest in using these funds to replicate that. And maybe it doesn't have to be in a condominium. Maybe it's in a smaller, low-rise building. Yeah, we've been hearing them talk about uh, rentals or or some other uh, way to get Hawaiians into housing besides single-family homes. Right. And there is, you know, uh, some background on that. The, The Hawaiian Homes Commission Act wasn't written uh, in that specific way to allow for rentals. The idea was sort of this 99-year long-term lease to to a plot of land that would allow them to to provide for their family and, and have a long-term home. So rentals was when it was initially, you know, proposed a sort of a uh, got some pushback. But uh, because of the high demand for affordable housing for Hawaiian homelands beneficiaries on Oahu specifically, the longest wait list, uh, there uh, with the sort of uh, most limited uh, in terms of land on Oahu for Hawaiian homelands. Rentals or sort of vertical building has been something that has been gaining popularity. And uh, as Gomes mentioned, the Mo'ili'ili uh, former Boilodrome site is currently a plan is out uh, for environmental impact statement uh, for figuring out uh, what will happen next and what beneficiaries want to see. Uh, there uh, in the past has been uh, a $600 million infusion. Folks might remember back in 1995, a settlement with the state 
and DHHL over the use of Hawaiian homelands uh, sort of without consent or compensation. And that $600 million over the last 27 or so years, according to GOMS, has moved about 4,000 beneficiaries onto Hawaiian homeland. So that's sort of a, a key figure uh, folks can keep in mind uh, when they're thinking about, you know, where where were this $600 million uh, really go? And, you know, we often hear that uh, a lot of the beneficiaries, you know, don't want to go where they've opened up uh, DHHL right. lands. And so they want to stay in town or somewhere else. And in my mind, I was thinking of, I think DHHL owns some land down there in Kaka'ako, Makai, but there is a provision that prevents them from building residential on that side. So if, the, you know, they can either do a land swap or they've got to get that rule changed, the law right. changed, if that's in the cards. Right, right. And having that backing of, of actual money to, to make these shovel-ready projects, something that will happen, uh, helps in, in, you know, changing some of those rules. But land uh, and availability or location is, is uh, by far the vast majority of waitlisters or DHHL beneficiaries, uh, according to a survey done in 2020, the big reason for not for sort of declining offers from the department is location. You mm-hmm. know, folks who grew up in Waimanalo don't want to move to Kapolei and, and vice versa. So working out land swaps may be something uh, this money could be used for. Yeah, uh, so. But both bills are up for committee hearing tomorrow. Uh, Senate Hawaiian Affairs Committee is considering the Senate a companion bill at one and the House Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs Committee at two. Uh, Governor David Egas says, you know, he welcomes the proposal uh, and hopes to secure increased resources to support the department. Okay, so we'll see how that uh, plays out this week. But thanks so much, uh, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR reporter Kuvehi Hiraishi. To read more of her stories, visit our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. of time we have to go but up tomorrow we talk minimum wage it's a call-in show do you make minimum wage what do you think or are you a small business owner how will it impact you call our talk back line 808-792-8217 hit us up on facebook at the conversation hpr email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org want to listen back to something you heard find all of our shows archived online i'm Catherine cruz join us tomorrow won't you for more of the conversation 